0: You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting podcast. This talk was given at twenty two twelve South Broad Street. For more information, visit us at Circle of Oh, we're all coming up, Rand, to talk with us. <laughs> oh, appreciate it. Oh, appreciate it. Well, you, guys. Hey, thank you, thank you. I'm really glad that <laughs> thank you, Rob. I'm glad that other people like had come up today, like Mabel, that you centered Father's Day, um, and made it special because my talk has literally almost nothing to do with Father's Day. I was worried that this was going to be kind of like the equivalent of like getting socks uh, for as a gift for fathers. If you did get uh, the father in your life a sock, that's fine. I'm sure they're really nice socks, though. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, okay. Um, kids, are kids already? Leave? Oh, they beat me to it too. Where everything's going so smoothly, I just come up, the kids just leave, everyone knows when things are supposed to happen. That's good. Um, so I have a slideshow that goes with this. Is it? Can we bring that up? Oh, nice, Ethan. Yeah. Um, well, I guess one thing I can say is we we're talking about before the slideshow even comes up. And I have notes here too, so I guess I don't even need it. If worst case scenario, it just doesn't happen. But. Um, yeah, so in this season we're talking about parables um, Last week we talked about God as uh, someone who looks for us Like the, the shepherd who looks for the single sheep that's lost The good shepherd who looks for the, the coin uh, I'm going a little bit of a different direction uh, this weekend In some of the parables I'm talking about God is more like, a, like an amp- absentee landlord looking for his rent And he's angry about it too um so like how do we um <laughs> how do we how do we square that though cuz it's a biblical image of that like, uh, Jesus gives us of God so how do we square this uh Jesus the good shepherd uh, Jesus the angry landlord um, I'm going to talk about it I'm going to talk about it cuz I um I'm, I'm just I'm just going to go with it we're going to go on so um so before I get into the parables I would kind of want to lay down some groundwork about like what I think about parables and what they're for right um, so when we do like godly play uh, this is I also work with the kids I'm part of the kids team join it guys we need more people and um, uh, when we bring out a parable we bring them out in a golden box oh there it is yeah so just go to the next slide. yeah we bring out a golden box just like that and we say like oh what what could this be children uh, this box is gold there must be something valuable inside of it because gold is very valuable but uh, actually, what's inside of it is much more valuable than gold. It's a parable. Um, <laughs> it's a parable. Parables are, <laughs> you know, I mean, you kids will believe whatever you tell them. So, um, if you say it in the right way. Um, <laughs> um, but anyways, you know, and then we go on to say, like, parables are like a gift that you, uh, that were made for you before you were born. And... Um, And, you know, I think that's all true, actually. I think that's good. But I think with this crowd, I can go into a little bit more about why parables are meaningful. And I just think parables are uh, a tool that we can use to slow down, that we can use to reflect, that we can get meaning out of. We can wrestle with them to get meaning out of them and truth out of them. They're kind of like the ring uh, inside which we can wrestle God, kind of like in the spirit of Jacob in the Old Testament. You know, Jacob wrestled with God and he was transformed through that process. He became Israel. He got a limp. But he, did, he pinned God, too, which is very impressive. Because in my personal experiences with wrestling with God, he's kind of like a, like a greased hog. He's slippery. He's a slippery guy. And uh, the, truth is, the truth is slippery. Um, but, and even though parables won't do it perfectly, they will point us in the direction of, like, I feel like big T truth. Let's, let's go to uh, the next slide. So what do I mean by that? Because, uh, like I said, truth is slippery. Whenever I talk about truth in church, I like to invoke Pontius Pilate, who's up there. This appears to be a picture of Jesus with Pontius Pilate, but it's actually um, a picture of a, a production of Jesus Christ Superstar from like the 90s. That's why everyone's white in the picture. Um, it's not actually from that time period. Um, but anyways, well, the reason I like to bring up Pontius Pilate is because he's a man who's uh, completely subsumed in uh, what I call socially mediated small t truths, right? Um, and what I mean by socially mediated is just like they're things that are true to us because we got together as a group, as a society and decide they're true. These are things like, things like race, things like money. You know, they're not like measurably true, objectively true, but they affect our lives and they guide us you know, profoundly, profoundly. What I'm saying they're not, Big T true. I'm not trying to dismiss them at all. They're very important. Because uh, Pontius Pilate is completely subsumed to them because his job requires it. He's a politician, uh, you know, and he's a good centrist. He he just follows the, uh, you know, kind of like common sense notion of what's true. He asks what truth is, and then he answers his own question. He goes to the crowd of people. He finds out what's going to keep tribute to Rome coming in, what's going to get me my job, and then that's the truth. And uh, unfortunately, for Jesus, that means he has his own the shopping bot. but like um, Jesus is concerned with the bigger truth. the parables are concerned with the bigger truth, but it 's hard to separate these things i don 't think there 's any systematic way of doing it. Um, so we just have to be careful that 's what I think we have to be a little bit uh, a little bit humble in, the, in this thing as we try to get towards truth. And another aspect of truth is that it's not a zero-sum game. Some things are kind of true, like are true enough to work. For example, um, in my job, I do research, psychology research, neuro, neuropsychology research with people who have had strokes. And in that field, we, we treat the every mental, we, we're a reductionist, and what we mean is like every mental function, like every mood you have, every thought you have is reducible to a biological thing happening in your head, right? And... Um, it works for research, it's not completely true. I mean, there's some problems with it. So like, for example, to say like, pain is just a cell firing in your head, kind of takes away, like, the, like pain is an experience, right? You can't define pain outside of the sensation of pain itself. So, and that's like how a lot of consciousness things are, it's very circular. So there's a logical problem with saying that all, uh, all mental states are physical states, but it's true enough that we can learn Interesting things about the brain useful things about the brain with doing it so we um, so we go with that model even though it's not a hundred percent true, so I'm just saying all this stuff in a really rambling kind of going by way because uh, uh, I want to say that I don't want to push for acknowledging these things push for like a single like definitive um, Interpretation of these parables that is like true, right? I think that that can be counterproductive. I think God is big enough to, um, to handle a lot of truth. Like, God could be, like, in my uh, 600-pound life. He's big. He could do it. And, um, you know, we're kind of like, thank you, you get it. Um, <laughs> um, um, you know, and we're kind of like small, like, when it comes to truth, us as humans, we're kind of like small, territorial, like nervous dogs. But God is not like that. It doesn't have to be like that. Oh yeah. So this is the next slide. This is kind of what I more want to view parables as. Parables are like a gestalt image, right? These gestalt images come out of gestalt psychology. It's a field of psychology concerned with the study of consciousness in a holistic way. And a lot of what like, they do is they have these images that are two things at once, right? It's a, it's a rabbit and it's a duck. These are two old people and then it's two young people sitting down. This is both an old lady and a young lady at the same time, right? I think parables are kind of, can be like that. They're kind of, um, there's layers to them. Um, and it's not like one is true or one is untrue, right? They both can be true. Um, and we already understand the Bible like this. We already like read it that way. We have allegorical takes on the Bible, literal takes on the Bible, moral takes on the Bible. Um, so this isn't completely new, but one thing I want to talk about with these parables today, which I'm talking about is I think we bring like a very modern, not wrong, but like a modern uh, lens to them, which maybe causes us to miss out on some things. Like Jesus came from an agrarian society. We're like in a, like a post industrial society. So like maybe our society and our theology lead us to see the rabbit. But when Jesus was talking to these people, they saw a duck because they had a completely different life experience from us. So. I just want to use them as like a way of illustrating how that could work. Um, so let's get into these actual parables now that I've kind of laid this uh, down. Let's go to the next slide. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read this, and then um, I'm gonna ask one of you guys what you think about it. All right. Well, let me get a glass of water first. So this is the parable of the wicked tenants. It's also called the parable of the wicked husbandman. I've never heard it called that before. Anyways, uh, so here another parable. There was a householder who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and let, let it out to tenants, and then went to another country. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get the fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another, Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. I don't know. But uh, when the (laughs) tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Uh, they said to him, uh, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season. And Jesus said to them, have you not read in the scriptures? The very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation, producing the fruits of it. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived he was speaking about them. But when they tried to arrest him, they, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. So that's kind of challenging, isn't it? Um, what, what, what is uh, the interpretation that you guys have of this? Or what's the one you've been taught or is popular with you? Does anyone want to put themselves out there? Like I said, you're not gonna, I'm not going to say you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong. Um, but I'm interested all right, so, and then, uh, who are the tenants? The tenants are traditionally thought to be, I don't know, maybe the Israelites generally, but maybe especially the Pharisees and the people at the temple, who are kind of like, you know, being hypocritical. The, the servants are um, the, uh, the prophets that have come to the people of Israel to try to guide them the right way, and then finally the son is sent. That's uh, Jesus Christ, so. That, uh, that's one interpretation. Maybe there's some weird things about it, but that's like it's an allegory, right? So that's why not everything has to make sense. Like, it doesn't make sense that they think they're going to inherit the vineyard because they kill the son. That's not typically how things happen. Like, a, you know, usually by killing someone, that actually gets you in trouble. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, there are some problems with that interpretation, though. And I don't think that's necessarily how the people who Jesus spoke the parable to would have necessarily interpreted it. Well, for one, the parable is kind of a reference to something in Isaiah, right? In Isaiah 5, uh, he talked about building a vineyard pretty much almost exactly like this. Um, so they would have thought about that. But also, there was a lot of like, uh, cultural and economic things that they would have been savvy to that we wouldn't have been. And so they might not have seen the, the landlord as the good guy in this parable. And uh, so I'm going to be taking a lot from a book that I recently read called Parables as Subversive Speech by a guy named William Herzog. And uh, he kind of adds like a historical analysis to this so that we can maybe try to see this parable in the duck way instead of the router way. It won't be a perfect process, but we'll get, get to it. So this is what he said about the parable. He kind of sees it as a codification or um, it's a kind of a story or an image that uh, represents a familiar or typified scene for the purpose of generating conversation about it and stimulating the kinds of reflection that expose contradictions in the popularly held beliefs or traditional thinking. So, yeah. And uh, so I picked this image because this is a Palestinian woman who's clutching what's left of her olive grove, which was taken from her. Um, And this kind of gets into my interpretation of it. So what he says is, the creation of a vineyard on economic grounds alone would have disturbed the hearers of the uh, parable. Land in Galilee was largely accounted for and intensely cultivated, so a man could acquire the land required to build a vineyard only by taking it from someone else. And the most likely way he would have added the land to his holdings was through foreclosure on loans to free peasant farmers who were unable to pay off the loans because of a poor harvest. Also, in I mentioned how this is like a reference to Isaiah, this whole parable is, in Isaiah, uh, in chapter 5, right after they explain the, uh, the building of the, the vineyard, one thing he, he, the prophet laments is, Ah, you who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no room for anyone but you. So that, together with like the economic situation that they were going through, maybe indicates that they, you know, we have like Christian theology, to kind of like explain like some of these other things, like that had to come in hindsight. These people didn't have Christian theology, so they wouldn't have thought of this as like, oh, this is the prophets and this is Jesus, the son. I don't know if they were even savvy or believed that Jesus was God's son at that point. So they wouldn't have understood it. But um, So what, what, what William Herzog is saying is that this is actually about a, uh, a cycle of violence which was being carried out in, uh, in Galilee uh, where peasants would be put in a bad situation, uh, there would be a revolt, and then there would be a state crackdown. And this happened constantly in Acts. This happened during Jesus' childhood. He would be very familiar with this cycle. In, um, in the fifth chapter of Acts, they, there's a reference to a, uh, different messianic movements because uh, one of the teachers is trying to convince people not to beat some of the early Christians to death. And it, and he mentions uh a guy named Judas of Galilee, who was in Galilee uh when Jesus was a kid. And he, he his main thing was he was opposing the the um the what is the when they count everyone? What's the word for that? The census, yeah. He was opposing the census by burning down farms. He had leaders, armed revolts, and stuff like that. And it mentions in uh, in the Bible that he was scattered and he was killed for his actions. And also Josephus, who's a historian, mentions him as well. Yeah, but he, also, he doesn't say what happened to him. Um, so this is about yeah. So this parable is about like a cycle of violence that happens, and it's codifying it. It's codifying a situation. It's getting them to think about these relationships. Um, so, to quote, uh, do another quote. Um, the parable may codify the futility of armed rebellion, but it does more. By exploring the themes of ownership, inheritance, and heir, it calls into question the accepted versions of these themes and undermines their credibility. So, how can the oppressed reclaim their honorable status as heirs if violent revolts end in futility? And, uh, are there other ways to assert their claims? This is a good question for us even today, right? Because the state has a monopoly on violence. It's very powerful. When you uh, oppose it on the basis of violence, you're playing the empire's game on their own terms, right? So you have to be creative about how you, how you set these things up. Um, so I, I want to just... As some caution, so Jesus is commenting on the tactics of peasants to resist something bad that 's happening to them, and Jesus can do this because he 's one of them, and he 's also been on the ground healing them, helping them out for uh like almost three years at this point when he tells this parable so i don 't think this is like an invitation to go and like please other people about their tactics or their anger when they think about things, but uh Like, don't go to this this woman and tell her how she has to handle the the problem that she's dealing with. But um, consider that Jesus was speaking to the material concerns of not just the spiritual, but also the material concerns of the people that he was ministering to. So let's move on to the next parable, the parable of the talent. Okay, so that's a really interesting take on God, right? Um... Because that's the traditional, the traditional interpretation is what um, God is the king. He, he uh, leaves the, he gives us talents. If we don't use them, they get squandered. Right. That's kind of uh, is that, that pretty much drives with what you heard growing up and stuff. So, I th- I just think it's really interesting. You know, the the servant says, "You, what is it, master? I need you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering seed, gathering where you scattered no seed." And uh, the guy doesn't even, he's like, yeah, that's true, fine, but you're a bad servant, so I'm gonna throw you in jail. So like, I don't know, but where is, where is, God, where is God not scattered seeds? So I think there is, he's created the, the whole world. So um, I, think there, I think there might be some issues. There might be, this might be another thing where we've developed a, a meaning, like a more rabbit-oriented meaning. And at the time, maybe it had a more, a duck-oriented meaning, and I'm gonna get into that too. Um, so, this kind of goes into what the role of retainers is. I think the first thing that people who heard this parable back then would have realized is that the, people, the servants in this story aren't of the same class that they are. Because a servant, like a, a king or a ruler like this, would not give ten talents to a peasant or something. This is a large sum of money. These are retainers or loyal servants of his who have been vetted and uh, have, have worked with him for a long time. Um, and the roles of retainers were to manage the kingdom, uh, you know, manage the territory, do kind of like the nitty-gritty work so that the king didn't have to. So they were involved in these uh, you know, these predatory loans that were going out to these peasants. Uh, and uh, and uh, they would k- gain a lot of hatred for doing this. Um, quoting Herzog again, the elites used their wealth to make loans to peasant farmers so that the farmers could plant crops. The interest rates were high. The purpose of making such loans was not so much to make a large profit, at least by the standards of the ancient world, but to accept the land as collateral so that the elites could foreclose on their loans in years when the crops could not cover the incurred indebtedness. This gave the elites control so they could do things like build vineyards. Um, this time period was especially hard for for peasants, because they were under twofold pressure. Now, usually you had the people at the temple, you had to pay tribute to the temple, right? That was part of uh, of the law, just being... But they also had the Roman occupation that was going on, so you had to pay tribute both to Rome and to the temple at the same time. And the temple wasn't making any adjustments to their normal program in order to facilitate this or make life better for the peasants. Jesus openly criticizes for them, them for this. Um, so... In this in this version of the parable, the, the third aristocrat is actually the hero. He's kind of like a whistleblower. He refuses to use the king's money to further exploit the peasants. He puts it in the ground, takes it out of circulation, and then when the king comes back, he tells him to his face that he's a jerk, and um, <laughs> and like so, you know. And for doing that, he's kicked out of uh, out of the compound, out of the out of the walls. He's thrown sort of into the outer darkness, where he's chattering chattering teeth, coldness. His life is ruined. He has to become a day laborer and assuming the peasants will take him back because they probably hate his guts, um, you know, he might starve. Um, So in terms of the process of codification, what is this codifying for the people of that time? Um, It talks about some critical issues. Uh, How would you react to a whistleblower? Would a former retainer find welcome in a peasant village? Do the people of the land realize the role played by retainers? Or do they kind of obfuscate or hide the real power relations with the lord and the peasants? Do they understand how the bitter animosity towards them could play into the hands of the ruling elite? And can peasants and the rural uh, poor realize how their interests can be tied to the very class of people whom they despise? This happened later on in Christianity. Like Some of these higher-up officials and stuff, they did convert. And so you kind of see these criticisms... uh, play out, like, in the communities and acts and stuff like that. Um, so let's go to the next one. So I kind of just took these parables. I did a very different intake on them that probably a lot of us haven't heard. I didn't hear these takes until recently when I read this book. Um, so why would I do that? Let's talk about some of the benefits of uh, this kind of, like, a, this, this take on, on the parables. Next slide, please. Okay. So these uh, interpretations of the parables help us to catch a glimpse of the lives of the people who Jesus directly ministered to. Um, these were people who needed both spiritual and material liberation, just like we do today. You talked about or Rachel talked about this in the beginning, and Jesus was not aloof to any one of those concerns. He was in for the whole thing. Um, if Jesus had just been the kind of teacher uh, popularly portrayed in North American church, a master of like the inner life, uh, teaching the importance of spirituality and a private relationship of God, with God. He probably would have been supported by the Romans as part of a rural uh, pacification program. I mean, and you see a lot of uh, a lot of our leaders. You know, so leaders are kind of like that day. They kind of lead us away from like collective struggle into like our own internal lives. It's, uh, we do need to take care of ourselves as individuals, but we, there's, more, there's more to that, especially when we're trying to like, minister to the world. We, we kind of have to stop seeing our individual salvation as different from the salvation of the world. And we have to take, um, if we want people to take us seriously, we have to start taking seriously their material concerns. This is something, as a church, I don't think, you know, and I'm not just picking on the circle of hope, I'm saying generally, as Christianity, we haven't done it very well in the recent history. And it's kind of a shirking of our responsibility to be like Jesus. Because we have power. We come here, we, we, we collect as people, we share resources. That gives us power, and we need to figure out ways to use it. So these parables kind of get us, they get us to some of the things Jesus was concerned with. And they also maybe encourage us to think about, what do we have in common? I, I keep on talking about how different we are from the people that Jesus ministered to. But how are, there's a lot of common themes, too. You don't have, I don't think you need like a really like crazy imagination to see we're, we're in some of the same situation here as they were back then. So, how do we apply this currently? Like, who are who are the tenants and the lazy servants now? We'll go to the next. So, I just have different pictures I found. Are the are the tenants the people who kind of like suffer of the violence of like the system? Kind of quietly, that uh, because the system kind of obscures it. Are they the victims of gun violence? This is a picture uh, at a park, very close to my house. It just has names of people who've died, been shot by guns. You know, and nothing's being done about it, right? You know, the cops don't really have an answer. We don't have an answer as a society. Um, are they people who are suffering gentrification? Again, just as silently, like uh, a form of violence masked uh, under the system as a legitimate thing. You know, people being displaced by economic forces. Are they the people who think them of themselves as heirs to something, but they feel like they don't have that anymore? That's why I have a picture of these Gen 6 people. I know you probably don't care for them very much. I don't. But, like, they're stuck in a cycle of violence, too, right? We're all stuck in a cycle of violence, so we could all be the tenants. Who are, who are the lazy servants? Is it Edward Snowden? He's still wallowing in the outer darkness, uh, russia right now you know he, he's been there for a long time is it chelsea manning who who blew the whistle on the military and you know them targeting civilians Spent a long time in jail for that so we have to think about who who are we in these parables who are how do we bring these parables into uh now with this new understanding also, how do we break out of the cycle of violence? Because Jesus had an answer to that. Like the the Holy Spirit, the communities in um, in Acts led people out of some of these situations, and they became very powerful. They changed Rome, and you know they also got kind of consumed in within it. But for a while, they were doing really good. Um, <laughs> yeah. So let's go to the next one. I just have some. Uh, right, I want to talk about this. Okay. So how how break cycles of violence? So one thing I think we could do is we just can't be uh, complacent. So th- I put this up there because this was something that inspiring that happened really recently. So the South, community, uh, the South Philly uh, Community Defense Hub and uh, some of the members of this congregation were part of a campaign to help a man named Taekwon Atkinson, right? He, um, he was charged with killing a police inspector's son. He was found innocent, but then because of the person who he killed, uh there was an attempt to kind of get even with him even though he was found innocent he was kind of uh there were some misdemeanor charges that he collected in prison while he was in prison for something he didn't do right so that's a little bit weird and then um they were giving a plea bill they wanted to put him in jail for three more years uh that's that's the deal they wanted to give him and uh but you know we didn't go there and we didn't like start trying to blow up the building and we, didn't, uh, and we didn't just sit back and pray for him and hope that it worked out for him. You know, people went out, and they were... We, we were at the, This is pictures at the district attorney's office. They were out there. Uh, you know, God bless Stacy, Taekwon's mom. She chased down a car that she thought Larry Krasner was in there. I'm not sure if he was even in there. But she chased that car down, and she yelled at him. And then other people were just screaming into the thing. This is real nonviolence. It's, it's not sitting back and doing nothing. It's confrontational. It's, it's a form of confrontation. And... Um, So I think preparing ourselves, uh, normalizing that kind of thing, um, walking that line—that's that's uh, that's an important uh, aspect of this. Um, Recently, some of us read a book called *Quaking of America*. I think one of the—it's by um, Resma, Yeah, (laughs) and um, one of the things, one of the concepts from that book that I really liked was the concept of uh, clean pain versus dirty pain, right? Clean pain is kind of the pain that we experience just as part of the human condition. You know, someone we love dies, we don't get something we want, um, that kind of thing. It's unavoidable. And dirty pain is the pain that we put ourselves through in order to avoid dealing with the clean pain and then resolving it. So like, you lose a job and then you blame minorities or something like that. Or like, maybe say you're in, you're doing drugs and instead of feeling the pain of, of, uh, of, of, uh, Withdrawal, you choose to continue the pain of being an addict, right? So yeah, I don't have an answer. I don't think there's a definitive like, systematic answer right now, but we're in a process now where we need to start thinking about these things. So I have some invitations. This is my last slide. All right, yeah, so I'm plugging. I'm plugging stuff now. Because I have invitations for things that I want to try out. We'll see. We have to experiment with these things. Think about it. Um, So, well, okay, we have the Juneteenth... Uh, redistribution. We did this last year. We got like thirty thousand dollars, so we distributed to uh, black congregants. And this one is specifically focused for kids and education. Our goal is sixteen thousand. I'm not actually savvy on how you donate money at this moment, but I think they're setting something up, and maybe someone else can tell you. That's good. That's good. I mean, that kind of uh, brings to mind the uh, retainer who gave up his privilege in order to stop exploitation. You know, like we're trying to put our money where mouth is. Uh, give some of the stuff that we've given. You know, it's a redistribution. It's not. It's not a reparations. We can't. We don't have the power to do something as big as that. But we can start trying to model something positive. Um, I'm really convinced now that I think we need to start working around this gun violence issue. I think uh, a lot of people are directly affected by it. Someone was sh- just a few months ago shot dead right on the corner of Snyder outside of our house, and it does. It just seems like another way we're being failed. So how as a community do we work around that? I want to start doing research and talking about it and figuring out what policies we need to support, who are the players in the area that we need to hassle, the politicians, maybe there's some NRA reps in the area. Who do we we talk to? How do we start figuring this out? We can do this as a community and we can minister to the community through this kind of work. And I think it will be appreciated because everyone knows it's crazy. We just need to figure out what to do. Um, I'm also going to do just on a, a more educational uh, and internal kind of thing, uh, a liberation theology reading group. I want to read the book uh, of the Crucified People uh, by Ignacio Acuria, e. uh, um, who was a he was an organizer in South America. He was killed for his work. He did, but you know, and this is a really good book, or it's not a really book. It's an essay. I want to do these small essays because when we just tried to do a book, it was a bit too long. You know. Um, (laughs) and people didn't want to like read like hundreds of pages, but this is 22 pages. So if you read it, I'm going to share the PDF. If you read one page every day, starting now, you'll be ready. You'll be ready by the 30th of July when I want to do this. And that's really all I have to, that's all I wanted to say. I hope that you found this like interesting. Um, I know like I can kind of like ramble a little bit, but, um, yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected, visit circleofhope.church. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at circleofhope.net.